Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode 163 of Love That Album podcast, part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. My name's Morris. I'm here in Melbourne. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you'll be digging this episode. I'm really looking forward to this. This is a show that we were supposed to be doing late last year, but because life got the better of me, we've deferred it till now. But here we go. I've got two wonderful people joining me to discuss Great Brisbane band, great Australian band, The Go-Betweens, and their album, 16 Lovers Lane. So first of all, I'd like to welcome back to the show. Uh, hasn't been around on the program since 2020 when we discussed John Cale, Doug Buissant. Welcome back to the show, Doug. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me back. And I'm really excited to talk about this because I feel like you all will know so much more than me about it. So it's just going to be like a learning experience for me as much as anything. Maybe not me, but certainly our second co-host, I think he's going to be the subject matter expert. Originally from Brisbane, now based in the glorious state of Tasmania, Mr. Darren Irvine. Welcome to the show, Darren. Hey, Morris. Thanks for having me. And hey, Doug, how you doing? Doing great. Uh, it's really nice to meet you. Definitely. Looking forward to uh, having an input in this uh, subject of choice. Now, Darren, I, we were talking the other day, and I was trying to think when was the first time that we spoke. So, you know, we met on the Facebook music groups. I was telling our great friend and also huge Go Betweens fan, Pat Monahan, out there at Rocksteady Records. Hello, Pat, if you're listening. Uh, he'd mentioned, he said, Oh, no one knows more about the Go Betweens outside of the band than Dazzy Irvine does. You better ask him to be on your show. And I thought, Right, that's good enough for me. If, if Pat says it, it is so. It's a quite a recommendation from Pat. He's a good man and uh, also a big Go-Betweens fan himself. Yeah, the Go-Betweens have been that special band in my life, I guess. We're going to go to a quick break and then we'll be back. And the idea is that we're going to be talking about the 1988 album from the Go-Betweens, 16 Lovers Lane, ostensibly their final album as part of their first incarnation. And what we do when we come back, we'll talk about that album, but we'll also be talking about a bunch of other things in relation to their history and a whole bunch of other issues because that's what this show does. 
guys. If you've tuned into Love That Album thinking we're going to be doing a side one track one, side one track two type of deal, that's not what this show's about. We go to a million and one other places, but it's all going to be about the go-betweens and related subject matter. So stick around. Hope you find some conversation that you'll dig. We'll be back shortly. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. And we're back. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 163. Doug over in Minnesota, Darren over in Hobart, me over here in Melbourne. And we're here to talk about The Go-Betweens, their final album of their original incarnation, 16 Lovers Lane. And I'm glad to have brought on a couple of Go-Betweens experts, despite what you might say, Doug. I have to start this episode off with a bit of a confession that I came to the go-betweens late, which is sort of a bit of a weird thing because in the mid-80s, I guess I was listening to more out-and-out pub rock sort of thing. So the go-betweens, I, I guess they weren't necessarily on my radar. I probably didn't sort of really get to them until maybe the mid-2000s with the reissue of 16 Lovers Lane. But uh, look, I'll come back to that in a few minutes. I sort of want to go with you guys and your origins. Doug, I know that your tastes are broad. It always sort of interests me where Americans and Europeans catch on to bands that Australians take for granted and maybe older bands in particular because like in today in the internet era when you can hear anything you want from any part of the world on Bandcamp or on one of these streaming services but older bands I mean it often I imagine it often takes recommendations and the like so I'd love to know your origin story with the go-betweens I heard them probably 2001 2002 or something and grouped with things that I wouldn't group with them now but the sound comes Angels, some of those British dream pop chameleons or something like that, where it was grouped with British bands. It wasn't grouped with Australian bands, because I think that, that, you know, the stuff I was listening to was when they were living in London. Spring Hill Fair was when they were living in London. Before Hollywood, that's the first one that I heard. So I grouped them. I thought they were kind of almost post-Joy Division kind of band from hearing before Hollywood. And then once I heard the later stuff, I was like, These, this is really refined and really uh, intelligent. And it kind of goes beyond post-punk, uh, which is where I thought they started. Darren, as I mentioned earlier, Pat had gone and said to me that you were something of a 
go-betweens expert, but when we first started speaking, actually, I'm not sure, maybe even Pat told me this. He said that you had had Grant McLennan come into your record store in Brisbane to sit around and talk about the monkeys all day, which I just found absolutely extraordinary. So tell me about your origins with the go-betweens and any Grant McLennan monkeys stories you wish to share. Oh, sure. Look, uh, I'll, I'll try and keep this as brief as I can. My love affair with the go-betweens started pretty much in my early teens when you know I was influenced by a lot of Australian bands at the time. The Church, Hootie Guru, Stems, Lime Spiders, Radio Birdman, Screaming Tribesmen, and the go-betweens. I met Grant for the first time in about 1987 when the record companies were promoting the upcoming album, 16 Lovers Lane. I first saw the go-betweens in 86. Robert Vickers was still in the band at the time. Um, So there's always been that love for the group. In terms of meeting Grant and a friendship forming, that all sort of started for me around mid to late 90s. You'd often see Grant in, you know, a couple of familiar pubs in Brisbane and you'd know who he is, but you'd be sort of apprehensive to approach him. Not for any reason, just that, you know, he's you're a fan of his and, and you don't want to intrude. And uh, so I met met Grant a few times through record companies. Once our friendship had formed, I had a shop on the north side of Brisbane. Grant never drove, so he always had the public transport wherever he went. I can remember he used to come out to visit me and the shop out at my store in the northern suburbs and knowing that I would get delivery of all the air freighted music magazines from the UK and US on a Monday. He'd be in there Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, fresh off the press to uh, read them before I got to even flip a page. And uh, he'd often be in my office, sitting on the couch, drinking my coffee, <laughs> read magazines, pilfering my free sample box the record companies had left me. But most of all, just having the most amazing chats about love, life, loss, music, and just general banter. He was such a uh, an amazing soul, and those times that I got to spend with him, I'll cherish. So, yeah... He used to come in. He loved the monkeys. He was always, can you, oh, can you get me this through import? You know, you, are you doing a Japanese import order? I've got this, that, and the other. I can remember just before he passed away, I'd um, ordered him a uh, monkeys figurine set from Japan that came up and it cost a fortune, but I knew he'd love it. So I ordered that for him, and unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't get a chance to give it to him, and he. Um, passed away before I had had that chance and I still have it in my uh, music room as a bit of a token memento of that time so this may be getting a little bit personal but I want to bring up like in a little bit about the book written by Robert Forster Grant and I and there's a lot about what Robert says in the book about particularly in that long period post the relationship breakup with Amanda Brown and obviously the post the original breakup of the band that Grant seemed very very fragile Did he ever seem fragile to you? He was often distracted, but he would engulf himself with other projects. He he was always hungry to hear what bands should I listen to, what albums should I buy. You'd see him at shows, you'd see him at a lot of concerts we'd go to. Uh, I can remember there was one night we were at Bell and Sebastian at Tivoli in Brisbane and uh, upstairs watching the band and I got a tap on the shoulder and here's Grant coming up to say hi and he wanted to talk about fanzine, that he, he had an idea for a go-betweens fanzine. wanted to know if I'd be interested in doing that and at the time I was I was quite snowed under with commitments. But, you know, he, he was always 
thinking about projects and and other things that could occupy his time. In terms of his personal life, he was such a quiet, humble human being. I think he was more concentrated on leaving that behind and what the future and his solo projects were going to bring. I know he's very keen to get those off the ground, as was Robert at the time. You know, they did eventuate, but I think it did took a, a big toll on him, that whole personal breakup with Amanda and Mindy at the time. I want to come back just for a moment to the monkeys because as you've gone and said like he was a huge fan of them and it sounds like you know a huge fan of just great melodic pop music in general i was thinking about this like, up until i sort of like, listened to this album over and over again in prep for our discussion i was thinking you know it, he might have been a fan but it never sounded to me like the monkeys ever influenced the go-betweens musically and yet then I thought about it. There's one song on the album, and we're going to get to the album in a while. We've got other things to discuss about the go-betweens before then, but one song on 16 Lovers Lay in the Devil's Eye sounds like a perfect Davy Jones ballad. I don't want to let you out of my sight Don't want to let you under your flight The fortune teller might have been right The battle world can turn your hair white Sometimes we don't come through Sometimes we just get by But I know with you I've never seen the devil's eye I was thinking of songs like Don't Listen to Linda from Instant Replay and Forget That Girl from Headquarters. It doesn't sound like a replication of those songs stylistically, but there's still something about that approach to Davy Jones singing that Grant uh, pursues in that song. To me, it defines that boy, girl, I'm going to look after you type of lyricism that you get in those Davy Jones songs. Did Grant ever say anything to you about how I'd love to write a monkeys type song or did he ever say hey did you ever listen to this that was influenced by the monkeys not as much but you could tell that he definitely was one of those songwriters that loved the whole boy meets girl girl breaks boy's heart boy writes a song about it sort of artist so you listen to a lot of grant songs especially and it's about relationships it's about family it's about growing up it's about heartache loss dreams comfort reflection where robert's songs were totally different they were more about influences and places and experiences grant's songs to me seemed a lot more personal and whether it was he was reliving his dreams or his experiences through his songs there was a lot of female focused in his in his lyrics i think robert said something which i hadn't thought about really that much but he said that for the largest part grant's lyricism tended to often go more into the abstract and he robert was more straight ahead i don't know i can find probably examples of either where that's not so but not necessarily sort of being a walking encyclopedia of their entire oeuvre i couldn't say but where do either of you stand on that you know doug would you say that that was a generalization or would you say overall that there's something in that it's hard to tell because it's one of those things where uh, grant and robert they complement each other so well hear how 
like how refined the albums sound, but they never sound stuffy. They're fun, they're smart, they're funny often. Uh, I really like early go-between stuff, like that Lost record that they had where, uh, like, Don't Let Him Come Back, which is maybe my favorite go-between song. I don't know. There's such a chemistry between the two songwriters. I, I think that they carry over. I think they. I think that they. It's kind of seamlessly carry over, and they're they're both sort of nostalgic. I think Grant a little more nostalgic for like the perfect sort of situation between humans, and Robert maybe a little more nostalgic for like a pastoral sort of daydream sort of thing. I I don't know. There's something kind of magical about the way the two work together, and that's certainly uh, a big part of Sixteen Lovers Lane. Yes, which we'll get to. And it's hard for me to tell like I have to go back and look at that insert on the record for who wrote which song even though I know like I, I'm like this, this is a grand song but there's something about the way that they work together that sometimes I, I lose the I lose the thread on who's writing the song or who's singing and I also like that his last name is Mick Lennon which solves the who do you like better McCartney or Lennon the answer is Mick Lennon <laughs> After the uh, the band had broke, they did a couple of solo tours together under McLennan and Foster. And I can remember seeing them one night and Robert walked out on stage with a bright yellow, canary yellow suit and a cravat. And Grant walked out in a pair of jeans and a check shirt and a guitar. And to me, that summed up who they were, just absolute opposites coming together. One was the flamboyant cabaret star, and the other one was the humble cowboy uh, man of the land who sang about heartache and hope where Robert was over-the-top extravagant. In some of those shows, they also reversed the songs. So Robert would sing Grant songs, take the lead on Grant songs, and Grant would take the lead on Robert's songs and put a totally different spin on them for the audience. And the way they were delivered was totally different as well. It was an intriguing tour, that one. And I think I read something in the Grant book that said that there was one tour, this is while they were still in Europe, where Robert would walk on stage wearing a dress, not trying to shock an audience out of their complacency or something. He just said, no, this is just something that I feel like doing. And you can't imagine maybe that that's something that Grant would have done. And yet, you know, even there we spoke about Grant. He was from far north Queensland, from a ranch, lived a country lifestyle, but he never seemed like what we picture as the North Queensland tough guy from the country. He was this sensitive guy and he loved literature and that's how the two of them bonded at university was over films and literature and the only reason that Grant learnt to play the guitar was because well, I think Robert said to him, I'm going to teach you the bass uh, and you're going to join a band with me. Oh, okay. But it was still about the arts for him, so that's that contradiction there too. And bonding over literature is maybe like the keystone of the go-between in so many ways is that they have this literature, this lyricism that is literature a lot of the time and is just beautiful and heartbreaking, but also it's understated. It's not, it's, it never feels overplayed. Their hand never feels pretentious. It never feels pompous. It's never asking you to work, to like it. It's like, 
hey, check this out. It, it feels so comfortable. And, and, and also, you, then you read the lyrics and you think, this is really smart. This has depth to it beyond just being a pleasant uh, time, which it often is, you know? So Lula, the one I think of is like, not my favorite, but still a very pleasant time. Is this your favorite, Go-Betweens? Yes, yeah, 16 Love is Life for a whole bunch of reasons is my favorite of their albums. Well, I guess maybe it's sort of worth bringing up now the question about, I know that it's your favorite, Darren, because Pat Witten told me so. Probably now's a good time to actually sort of maybe bring up about their songwriting progression or their musical progression, because they went from this band, which recorded a handful of independent singles, started out with the absolute wonderful Lee Remick on one side Karen on the other side she comes from Ireland she's very beautiful I come from Brisbane and I'm quite plain she's from the mountains so close to heaven clouds on her shoes stars on her chest and for a little label, the Able label in Brisbane. Downtown Tawong. Tawong, yeah, should be precise. The Tawong Music Centre, that's where they both uh, both were working and at the time, and I think it was $150 at the time to press all those records on that Able label, so... Bargain it twice the price. Uh, so they start out, uh, and that was even before Lindy joined those first few singles. The Grant and I book says that um, they always wanted a female drummer, or rather Robert at least, said they always wanted a female drummer. So they went through these male drummers, about two or three of them, before they got onto Lindy. She'd been a drummer, but also maybe in some ways as far removed from those guys as it could be. You know, she was uh, take no prisoners. She was uh, an activist very politically involved. She'd already been drumming for another band, which uh, I think John Wilstead, who ends up joining later on, was also a part of. But she came in and then that's where it clicked. They had their sound for those first couple of albums and then Robert Vickers joins them for the middle two albums and then the final two albums, it's John Wilstead and Amanda Brown join and there's that sound, that evolution as they go. Tallulah, the second last album of that original period, is also a great pop album and it's the same lineup as the lineup that we get on 16 Lovers Lane and yet it sounds to me maybe because of the production I don't know it sounds like it has more in common with Spring Hill Fair or Liberty Bell than it does with 16 Lovers Lane I think Mark Wallace is a producer on Tallulah but they bring him back for 16 Lovers Lane it's a completely different sound Thank you That picked me up straight away And it could have been a different band in some ways. I'm more in love with that sound. I mean, I like those early albums. I really like those early albums a lot and want to come to a few individual songs, but... 
something about 16 Lovers Lane. I know that there are some people, I was having a look through Rate Your Music, and a lot of people say, I've listened to 16 Lovers Lane, I don't get it. I prefer the angular sounds of the early days. I don't necessarily agree, but I can see why, because it almost sounds like a completely different band. But that 16 Lovers Lane, despite the, the lyrical matter being very dark, and we'll get to that, is a very lush, romantic sounding album. And that's just, it's a subjective thing, but that's, I guess, what appeals to me more. But yeah, this is not like listening to Send Me a Lullaby. I wanted to sort of run by the two of you. Do you think that it's a, as much about how Grant and Robert evolved as songwriters, or is it more about production or having different musicians going from a three-piece to a five-piece? What do you think is the difference but or the differences between say semi a lullaby and before hollywood and 16 lovers lane i think with those early albums i think because they chopped and changed record companies a few times in various countries i think consistency they weren't getting the um, radio support so the chances of having that breakthrough hit were pretty much null and void because Australian radio, apart from you know your triple R's, your four triple Z and double J, they didn't get too much support on those early albums at all and I think that really hurt the band in terms of momentum I think consistency wise it probably hurt them in where they were travelling to for the later albums I think they'd sort of refined their songwriting skills a lot and I think with 16 Lovers Lane I think John Willsteed doesn't get the credit he deserves for his input in that last album. For me, the earlier albums had big songs. Each album had a killer radio hit on it, but it just never became that radio crossover hit. But not so much that the band was striving, but I think they needed to cross over and become, you know, a household name or a, more of an elevation in their profile. I think in terms of craft, I think they got better and better as they uh, each album progressed probably the record companies were reluctant to spend money on the next album if the previous one hadn't had that crossover so there was a lot of factors in play i think harmony and where they all were in their lives at the time i had had a bit to do with the songwriting as well I agree. I think that I think the songwriting. I think you get hints of it with like your turn, my turn, or a bad debt follows you. Where they are doing, and that is kind of what I talked about earlier. Them being grouped in with some of those post-punk bands. Fans. I think a lot of what they were doing just gets better and better. A huge part of it is them getting more production, and it does come close to cloying sometimes on 16 Lovers Lane, where you have these strings, you have these big arrangements, but it still feels like a small go-between. You can still, inside of that, the bare bones of it could have been a song 10 years before it. Uh, I think they had those songwriting chops in place, but yeah, any, anytime we do something for a long time, you're going to get better at it, but you're also 
find that want to approach it in different ways. And so doing just the indie rock post-punk thing, I'm sure at some point they thought, how can we enrich this? You know, how can we give this some new life? You have to do that, I think, as an artist. And some fans like that, and some fans don't. And some people are like, before Hollywood's the best one. And some people think 16 Lovers Lane's the best one. And I think it's a testament to how good they are regardless of production and how good they are regardless of instrumentation. You know, they could be all just playing children's guitars and xylophones, and I think they would still be interesting. I think they have an incredible ability to write these refined pop songs. They definitely had the songwriting chops right from the beginning. I mean, and for God's sake, Cattle and Kane. How wonderful a single that should have been nominated as one of the greatest pop songs written in this country. I recall a schoolboy coming home through fields of cane to a house of tin and timber and in the sky a rain of falling cinders from time to time the waste, memory waste. I think it was, wasn't it? Wasn't it at some point like listed as one of the top 50 songs in Australia? Oh, actually, you may be right. Oh, gosh, there I go. There I go, forgetting that. It was on Stones Magazine poll, a reader's poll, and I think it came in quite high. If not, didn't top it. It might, it might have been in the top five. I think Under the Milky Way was voted best song, and I think Cattle and Kane was up there high. So yeah. you got to remember, too, they had six albums in seven years. They were quite prolific in that period, in that songwriting period from 1981 through to 1989. Well, I'm even really astounded just how prolific they were. It goes beyond those six albums. So uh, uh, Pat Monaghan had loaned me his box set of G is for Go-Between. So for those of you out there who may not know this, so there were these two box sets where they reissued the records of the original run of Go-Between's albums, plus four CDs per box of B-sides, songs that didn't make the albums, demos, all sorts of things. He loaned me the second box set and it's not like I had the time to really absorb and have it as part of my everyday thinking or whatever, but I did listen to those CDs and there's a ton of songs in there that they say, well, yeah, this can't make the cut of a finished album, but how prolific they're far more prolific than we ever could have guessed just from those six albums and as you say six albums in seven years i mean that's the sort of thing that well i was going to say the beatles did the beatles did actually more i guess but nowadays we talk about you know bands doing an album uh once every two every three years that was that was the sort of thing that was for commercial reasons rather than creative reasons and basically you know robert and grant just live to write songs and to impress each other they say, hey let me play you this one mm, that one's really good let me play you this one they were always out to impress each other and that could have only been a good thing for us as listeners that they wanted to maybe not necessarily outdo each other but wanted to impress the other one who had high standards of song appreciation and we were all the better for it but yeah this box set showed that they had tons and tons of things that they went and recorded and didn't even sort of see fit to release to the general public at the time, but some of these are really, really great songs. The competition between the two boys, songwriting-wise, it was beautiful to watch it unfold over the years, and there was never any egos in it, and they kept their friendship to the very end, and that's a credit to both of them as human beings to be able to do that.
want to change the tack a little bit. As I've mentioned a few times in this, I've read the book Grant and I. I know that you said you hadn't read it, Doug, but I think you've read it, Darren. So the book is called Grant and I. So you would take the impression from that that the book is really more about their friendship and obviously it's got to include plenty of stuff about the group because that was a large part of their friendship was the group. But I had read something that said that Amanda and Lindy were hugely pissed off thinking that written about us like we're just support players in this band that we had creative input into. And on the one hand, I can sort of see why they'd feel that they were shortchanged. But on the other hand, if Robert's friendship with Grant was his number one ideal and what he chose to write the book, I mean, you look at the front cover and it's the two of their faces. It's not a biography of the go-betweens, although, of course, it's a large part of it. But I know that you said that you've spoken with Lindy and Amanda over the years. And how do you feel about the book? Do you think it shortchanges them? And if so, do you think that Robert saying, well, I'm writing about my friend rather than about the group is, is a valid thing? I think the angle of the book was about Robert's relationship, friendship, bromance, partnership with Grant as the main focus. I think there was still cracked eggshells, I guess, that around the whole breakup when 16 Lovers Lane finished and Lindy and Amanda, the relationships between the four sort of disintegrated and the decision was made by Robert and Grant to move on without them in creative processes. I think the focus of the book, it's a beautiful book. We actually went to the spoken word. Robert came down and, and did a spoken word at the City Hall here and, and around the country on that tour. And he talked about growing up with Grant and meeting Grant. Robert's goal was always to be on stage, that he had to convince Grant to go along with him to be on stage. Robert was always going to be the debonair performer um, that you know took centre stage and wanted the spotlight, he had to convince Grant to go along with him for that ride. So it was a beautiful friendship and you know they often say opposites attract each other and, and bounce off each other and, and, and in, in this case they did. They did beautifully. It's a hard book to read. It's a tough read because you can feel how emotional it was for Robert to have to write it. I felt reading it because he wanted to put his friend in a good light and himself in a good light. There's, this is not a tell-all, a kiss-and-tell-all sort of book. This is not about all the drugs they snorted or all the times that the group bitched amongst each other, around each other. It's just about a group of friends who struggled in London for over five albums and about their creativity. This is not a gossip book. This is a, a fan of the band type of book. Tell me something nice or tell me about maybe how hard you did it. And that's what the book is. I think you know, Robert is in the old sense of the word, a gentleman. I'm sure there's stuff that he could have put in the book that he chose not to. And I think it's all the better for it the way that he has written it. But once again, it comes down to that you know, Lindy and Amanda have supposedly had their issues with it. Maybe they found their peace because they were in the documentary directed by Creef Stenders right here uh, and they were happy to speak about it. But according to the book, when Grant and Robert decided, at least this is Robert's side of the story, not that they were wanting to do without the two of them and John Wilsteed, but just that they didn't want to do the band at all anymore at that time. Amanda and Lindy 
Wendy were incredibly pissed off thinking that they'd been pushed to the side of the road. So, I mean, I wonder if there's stuff in the book that they sort of think, hang on, that's not really quite how it happened. There's a really good article that was written in 2019, I think, by uh, Anne-Marie Perd. It was published in the, the Music Forum online. And she talks to Amanda and Lindy about that period. For any of any of the listeners that want to have a read of that, Anne-Marie Perd, you can find it online. It's a really good article, very honest article. And I think it, contrary to recent things that have been released saying there was a lot of bad blood, I think it, it sums it up really nicely in that article. I'll get the link off here later on and uh, maybe put it in the show notes for this. Talking about the history of the band in the book, they started out in Brisbane decided like a lot of other bands in Australia at the time, London is the place for us. The Saints moved, Nick Cave moved, and they actually, the book actually describes a gig that they did, I think in Sydney, though. Beforehand, they played with the birthday party and they played with the Laughing Clowns, Ed Cooper's post-Saints band, and you know these two ferocious band and this delicate band singing about having a love of Lee Remick. There is some shared DNA between the early birthday party stuff or Prayers on Fire and uh, Send Me a Lullaby or something like that. There is something uh, confrontational about early go-betweens, despite them being a very approachable band. And I think that there's a similar sort of feralness that they have early on with Don't Let Me, Don't Let Him Come Back or Karen. It's unpolished and it's unrestrained. I think that the birthday party carries that. And maybe it's Australia, maybe it's the penal colony of Australia that, that stays in there. Have you read The Fatal Shore? The Story of Australia. It's like a thousand page book. It was a really great read. Maybe I'm projecting something. I think that it's been discussed a lot in media articles that Australian bands, by virtue of the fact that we're thousands of miles away from the rest of the planet, had to find their own sound. And by nature, a lot of it was tough. Um, There was none of that refinement. I mean, that's a broad generalization. But it's interesting that you sort of say that there is that comparison between what seems like the wild, reckless abandon of something like the birthday party and the go-betweens, which wouldn't necessarily sound like it joined side by side, although they did for that gig that I mentioned. But they certainly had more in common being on the fringes of the music scene compared to what was going on as the Australian mainstream of the time. So there were, uh, what were we listening to in 1982, 83, 84? Darren, there was Cold Chisel. There Australian was Crawl. Australian Crawl. The angels, the an- yeah, the angels, or as you Americans call them, Angel City. That stuff on the Alberts label, and keep that name in mind, folks, because that's a heavy focus of next month's Love That Album. Quick plug in there for next month's show. But when people from the Northern Hemisphere thought about Australian music, it was going to be about one of two things. It was going to be Air Supply, or it was going to be ACDC. So, yeah, there's that contradiction. Well, I think Cattle and Kane was written on uh, Nick Cave's acoustic guitar, right? I'm not sure if it's that song, but yes, I did borrow a, an acoustic guitar off Nick Cave for a song, and it might well have been that one, yeah. And then they followed the progression of the birthday party of, like, moving to London, because that's where you need to be, ostensibly, because it, well, it's hard to imagine, because now we live in such a global society, that you can be in the most rural place in the world and still release albums and millions of people can hear. As opposed to, well, how are we going to get on Warner Brothers if we live here? We have to move to the central location. There's something of the dreamer that has to exist, and I think exists both in the birthday party and uh, the go-betweens. 
because you have to to move thousands of miles away to what some would consider the center of the music industry. We had a bunch of bands in that period that basically said, we're going to make it in our own backyard. I mean, I know Cold Chisel, we were speaking before we started recording, they tried to make it in America and uh, they're... I think Warner Brothers wanted absolutely nothing to do with them. And of course, we got You Got Nothing I Want as a fantastic song out of that experience. So they said, no, we'll just be content to be telling our own stories to our own people. But yeah, it seems like any of these bands, the Bee Gees went, well, I mean, they were British to begin with, but they went over to London and the Easy Beats, so they went back to Europe as it was as part of a tradition the go-betweens moving to London so they actually so they went to London and then went up to Scotland if I think I remember correctly from the book initially and they made friends and they were critically appreciated I mean I still to this day don't understand how they didn't make it bigger because you know they were really in the company of other melodically accessible bands who did had some level of success at the time bands like pre Fab Sprout, uh, The Church, Aztec Camera, The Dream Syndicate, and The Smiths. Although, mind you, I was discussing this with Pat Monaghan, and he said, yeah, but they, those bands were successful in an indie sort of way. And the go-betweens never made a secret the fact that they wanted to be big. They wanted to be top 40 type big. And none of those bands were top 40 type big. Smiths, kind of, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess. Kind of. Have you ever heard, um, I, I think about this band uh, in relation to the go-betweens. They are the only band that kind of sounds like the go-betweens from that scene. The Servants? Luke Haynes, from, who later did the auteurs, you know them. Uh, it's Phil King, who was later in Lush. They're kind of a Baroque pop. Um, they have a song called Afterglow that is the closest thing to the go-betweens. I'm always early to rise And to say my goodbyes and I mean them But as soon as I'm gone I know I'll regret what I said for a long while I hang on to you they didn't have any success they didn't get over they couldn't and i feel like they were stuck in that same place as the go-betweens where it's too clever too intellectual maybe for the mainstream pop world but also to but reaching further than indie you know and so they fall in this weird gulf where they can never quite get where they should be you know they should be up there with smiths or uh, they should be above oasis you know what i mean <laughs> but 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 they're not they're, they're marginalized in some sense and yet success can be a fairly subjective sort of term in a way because i'm wondering how reliable a narrator robert forster is i mean it is his book it was his lived experience and he said well we released this album and we recorded this single and we thought this was surely going to make it and it never did and it we never scared the top 40 we never approached it and yet here we are in 2023 talking about these albums which to their fans are beloved emi went and re-released all these albums they're putting out box sets in record format you don't do that for a band that only played a handful of gigs down at their local pub you don't get a classic australian albums documentary tv show made about you if you had no success whatsoever i listened to this live album that was in the Gears for Go Between box set volume two. And we're not talking about 
the O2 Arena, but there's a lot of people there and they played a lot of gigs. So I don't know, maybe because I'm just a schleb recording a podcast from his front room, I have a different definition of success to what Robert Forster does. But it seems to me that the band, they're still beloved. We mentioned before Darren Australian Crawl and really who's still talking about Australian Crawl? No offense to the fans of the band, but they were huge back in the day. But people are still talking about the go-betweens. When the albums came out in Australia, I don't think the record companies, A, knew what to do with them. had the patience to work the albums because they were more influenced what America was doing. What was breaking in America? What can we break here? You know, Elton John's got a new album. We'll pour all the money into that. Or the Eagles have got a new album. Let's pour all the money into that. Growing up in the 80s in Australia on radio, there was virtually hardly any new Australian content. It was all just classic drive-time rock. And I think that's what the go-betweens problem was. They faced that. Therefore, the albums were coming out. They were not getting the radio play. They didn't have the venues really in Australia to get the momentum, even though the songs were great and timeless. And I think that's what the cult factor has been with a band like the Go-Betweens. I just don't think the record companies at the time, they chopped and changed. I can think of about four Australian record companies they went through in those seven albums. There's no momentum. And, and of course, if they haven't got a radio hit, then the next record company are reluctant to pour the dollars into it to drive it. All you've got to do is look at how popular Robert and his son's current tour is in the UK. And they're all go-between spans going to see Robert, and they're sold out every night. So musically, history is being kind to him. Yeah, and you go to a Robert solo show now, and yes, the focus is on the new album, which is which is incredible, by the way. But you see and hear footage from the concert, and as soon as he plays a go-between song, everyone in that crowd in the UK or through Europe know the lyrics. They're singing along with those songs. So there's magic there. Sometimes you've got to wait 20, 30 years for that to happen. I mean, look, as I said, I didn't get into the go-betweens when they were a thing. I wasn't listening to Triple R in the mid-80s. That would have surely been a thing at the time, but the last, whatever, 15-odd years or so since I got my copy of 16 Lovers Lane, and then I went out and got the other CDs. Yeah, speaking to your point, Darren, about everyone going wild once they hear the go-between songs, I saw Guided by Voices five or six years ago, and Robert Pollard said, I know you want to hear the old stuff, but this is going to be a hit in the future. (laughs) And so they played something new, and I feel like that's the that you know that's the, the difficulty of the go-betweens is they they just they moved so fast you know 1986 you see the go-betweens you're like when are they going to play cattle and cane when are they going to play the hammer the hammer the progression the amount of songs that they wrote like you were saying earlier morris it's astounding and now and robert's still doing new stuff you want to play the new stuff and then people will realize in 20 years from now how lucky they were that robert forrester kept going and kept moving and as an aside i think i read in an interview maybe last saturday's age uh, maybe a couple of weeks before i'm not sure but anyway with amanda brown and i think she says something to the fact of well you know the go-betweens was important but guess what i've been writing movie scores for the last 30 years why isn't anyone asking me anything about that I want to talk about the musicianship 
because I know that a lot's been said, a lot's been written about how basic Robert and Grant and Lindy were as musicians. And then John Willsteed and Amanda Brown came in to add some polish. And I think I even remember seeing it might have been in that classic Australian album special where John is a bit dismissive of the three original members as musicians. And I take issue with that. Okay, so Lindy Morrison is no Neil Pert, but that shouldn't be the guide as to whether she's a great drummer or not. And they don't just sound like three musicians who know what they're doing, but th- th- it's it's the the combination that the was it the combination is greater than the sum of its parts or something like that. So we mentioned Cattle and Kane before, and that five four six four changing up every bar pattern. It sounds like Lindy's not doing too much, but there's signature changes on that song on Before Hollywood. There's structural things which just blow my mind it's not just straightforward verse chorus verse chorus basic chords they're doing all weird sorts of things on before hollywood that i'm sorry basic musicians who don't know their craft couldn't do and so i think that they've been very short sold as musicians and they wrote great songs uh, i think with lindy's drumming i think she's an outstanding drummer and she was really that engine that drove the boys to add their little interludes and chord change structures and all the little funky bits around. There's some songs like you listen to Lindy's drumming on Spring Rain and it's that Tommy Gun sort of to allow the songs to come to the forefront but allow that river to flow with her drumming. I, I highly rate Lindy Morrison's drumming and even even to this day she's still touring around with the guys from Black Eyed Seasons and um, Shane O'Mark doing tours. So she's touring and playing every night and is still as sharp as a tack. So yeah, credit to Lindy. She was a big, big part of that go-between sound. And listening to that live album that comes in the box set, it sounds even more impressive. I think we often sort of say, oh yeah, they were better live, but I think the go-betweens, it's definitely true. I, I think, was it you that was saying to me the other day, Darren, that they tended to play a lot faster? Yeah, very much so. And you can hear that on a lot of those recordings that, that you're referring to in the box set, um, especially the overseas recordings. And there was a couple of radio shows that they did in America that they recorded and, and released on special editions of, of albums like Live at the Wireless sort of uh, setups where their tempo... They were, they were a lot quicker, whether it was in full band mode with with Lindy upping the tempo with the drums or just the boys playing acoustically. They always seemed to just ramp up the tempo when they were playing live. It was um, a holistic thing or something that they just thought that they needed to do live to capture the audience further. I'm not sure, but whenever I saw them, or whenever you listen to them live on recordings, they always seemed a lot faster. When you saw them live, they were just... 
I thought as normal, but on those live recordings, you can really hear a tempo change. One of the criticisms that I'd read on Rate Your Music, which maybe means I shouldn't be reading Rate Your Music, <laughs> was that you know they didn't have enough of a tough sound. They were fairly wimpy or something like that, which I thought, well, those live recordings put paid to that, to that rumour. I mean, as if tough is supposed to be like a an arbiter of what makes a band sound great unless you know their their standard was say like you know rose tattoos album assault and battery or something like that but of course they're not that type of band and they weren't a band that used a lot of effects pedals and distortion pedals or assistance it was pretty much you know three chords and the truth yes uh, grant and robert and acoustically you know obviously they electrified that sound live but you know they didn't need to they weren't my bloody valentine or jesus in the merry chain they didn't need all these uh, pedals to um, get their point across neither of the two songwriters wanted that sort of thing they just wanted as you say get the song across but i reckon that if they'd said hey maybe we ought to start having tube screamers i think lindy would have smacked them at the back of their head and said cut the bullshit and just play i think there would have been would have been some resistance for sure <laughs> i think you hear like on spring hill fair like bachelor kisses or something where they do these little guitar lines that are not solos and they come between parts and they they perfectly fill out and perfectly match what the song feels like. And to argue that like, oh, we need this blistering guitar solo here and that's what makes music or we need this big drum fill, you know, sort of impressive thing. Obviously, that's not the end all be all of music is not to have this show off some technical proficiency. And they were all incredibly great musicians, but uh, it's understated. This is what fits the song, not this is how hot shit I am at guitar. It was beautiful. It was beautiful garnish that they just added to sublime lyrics to just make it make it work. It just made it, made it work. Well said. And, well said. and even more so what John Wilstead added on 16 Lovers Lane with his guitar playing. He just brought that next dimension from what Robert and Grant were previously doing themselves. And you can hear a few John's parts on that album, and they're just standouts. They're just absolute standouts. That seems like as good a time anywhere to take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll actually talk about 16 Lovers Lane, because you're thinking, hang on, it says on the podcast that's what you're talking about and you haven't done anything about it yet. But now's the time. We're going to go to a break. I'll throw in a podcast promo for some other show, because that's what I like to do. And then we'll come back, and the three of us will actually discuss 16 Lovers Lane the album that is advertised on the box. We'll be right here. Right here. Right here. Junkies, it's a music podcast, baby, covering every musical genre. What do we got that the others don't? I'll tell you. We got Mondo Heather's Heather Drain. Noise Junkie. We got Wolf and Raisins HP. Noise Junkie. We got Dark Destinations Father Malone. Noise Junkie. And we got you. We got music, and we got you, baby. And you get it at Weird and Way Media. Noise Junkies. Welcome back to episode 163 of Love That Album Podcast. My name's Morris. I'm joined by Darren and Doug. And we're now going to start talking about the album that's listed on the podcast. 
16 Lovers Lane by The Go-Betweens came out in August of 1988. For an album that sounds bright, both from a production and melodic perspective, this is a lyrically very dark album. This is not a love album, but it is a relationships album. And I often sort of found it really quite interesting that, I mean, the, the album features two couples well one ex-couple and a current couple and i just sort of find it really fascinating that grant mclennan who's in the midst of a relationship with amanda brown who he's absolutely smitten with writes some songs that you think these are not the songs you write for someone when you're madly in love but not for the go-betweens not for robert forster and grant mclennan to be purely writing songs about Gee, isn't love grand? I mean, they do that occasionally, like right here. But for the most part, they they like looking at the dark side, which is unusual because they were described as having that striped sunlight sound. And musically, they certainly did. And it's really more apparent on 16 Lovers Land than I think than any of the albums that came out before. But Darren, we were discussing before we started recording that I've been reading this great book called Pig City uh, about the period in Queensland that was where the state was being run by Joe Biocca-Peterson. People outside of Australia look him up. Uh, he ran the state like it was a police state. There was corruption. There were police beatings of anyone that they didn't like. I didn't realize as well until I read this book that a lot of the police beatings were done by rural police, not even city police, because Joe Biocca-Peterson thought people who were protesting against his government, they needed the no-bullshit approach that only the country constabulary could do so they'd bring them in and there's all sorts of terrible stories in this book but the, anyway the reason why i'm bringing that up is because grant mclennan and robert forster and uh, lindy morrison grew up in joe biocca peterson's queensland and apart from one song which i'll bring up in a bit it never seemed to me like their music reflected queensland politics i mean obviously bands like the Saints were very much a reflection of Queensland at the time of Peterson's rule. But, but on the other hand, maybe the fact that the songs on this album, even though no reflection of what's happening politically in the state, are still very dark. Maybe that's just the way how, they, how their demeanour was. They wrote dark songs. And once again, they spent, apart from the Able Label singles, all the albums were recorded in England and 16 Lovers Lane was recorded in Sydney, supposedly where they said, hey, this is a bright place. It's better than living in Brisbane, better than living in London. We're going to write these bright songs. Any thoughts with either of you about whether these songs on this particular album reflect living under dark circumstances? Um, I mean, Darren, do you think that anything that they ever wrote really reflect, reflected their growing up in Joe Becker Peterson's Queensland? Sold his wallet for kerosene Fuel to burn his friends Angel stained with nicotine Sing for his defence Look, they should have been a band that wrote angry negative songs and I think, if anything, they were the opposite. They wrote songs about love and hope and heartbreak and dreams instead. I can see that lyrically on 16 Lovers Lane that the album is pretty much about bitterness and heartbreak maybe guilt, loss, a lot of those um, themes do ooze through and that's probably the darkness that you can feel. But in terms of angry songs, I, 
Yeah, I I can't think of too many angry songs that the band wrote. You know, there is darkness there, but I think it comes from those those themes that I mentioned. I think Streets of Your Town is kind of a dark song in an interesting way. Where, like at the end where they talk about like they shut it down, they pulled it down, like they're destroying the past. is constantly changing and it's supposed to be or or ostensibly it's supposed to be this song that is about familiarity or routine comfort like round and round up and down the streets of your town but then it's also like the town is constantly changing the world is this unstable place and there's something sad and nostalgic sounds too sappy but um there's something yearning about it that make it's also kind of angry. It's like you're destroying this thing that I love, and in a way, destroying my memory of this place. That, um, that, that song itself could be about Brisbane, with during that Bielke Peterson regime that Morris uh, referred to, because the, the Bielke Peterson government had a lot of developers on side, and the ones that weren't that they he used to instruct a company called the Dean Brothers to come in overnight and demolish buildings that were heritage listed and. And so the developers could go in and start their work. So, you know, Brisbane itself lost a lot of prestige, historic, beautiful buildings overnight through greed and corruption. So that reference could refer to that. I'm not sure. I was sort of wondering whether that song, I mean, it makes sense in some ways that it is about Brisbane, but this album was recorded in Sydney. They said themselves, we want a fresh start in Sydney. And Grant was writing with this new frame in mind and he was in this relationship, as I said, with Amanda Brown, the band's violinist and oboist. And it sort of seems like it's a rather unusual thing to write about but when he's saying it's the streets of your town not the streets of my town not the streets of our town sydney was not his city uh i mean he was living there i think at the time but he's writing this song about the streets of your town and it doesn't really sound like it's the sort of thing that you'd write to the woman who you absolutely love oh your town the sun looks good today but the butchers are out there sharpening their knives and this this town is full of battered wives not very complimentary not the sort of thing that you want to do to endear yourself to your new lady love and yet they wrote this song together the interesting story that i got from the book was that all throughout robert and grant's songwriting lives the other guy would be the one who they first played the song to they'd sit across from each other play the guitar to the other one and say here's a new song and this is the first song that robert said he recalled that grant hadn't introduced to him before he'd introduced it to amanda and she came up with that shine on bit and don't the sun look good today She brings the sunshine to this song and probably 
this I mean the song is very very memorable but if you ask someone what's the thing you remember most about Streets of Your Town it's her shine on vocal that's very very distinctive and I think that's where Robert said that's well maybe we're fracturing I'm very upset he's my friend this is my romance not your romance Amanda it's just such a gorgeous song and that's you know we can sort of discuss that it's a shame that a song like Cattle and Cane wasn't going to be huge on the Australian pop charts but you know maybe it's a little bit too angular maybe for the mass Australian populace but to this day I think that Streets of Your Town should have been a, a top five pop hit. Was it their highest charting song? I think it was like 45 or something like that on the charts. What was their highest charting song at least as far as like... I think that was it but it didn't get into the top 40. It might have been like 45 or maybe 65, I don't know, something like that. Why did Streets of Your Town, that's the biggest mystery, how that did not get to be a top 10 hit. And that's possibly because commercial radio, but they probably had this baggage. They're the band which had these five weird sounding albums. We're not even going to play this. Yeah, so it definitely was a big mystery because it was uh, lengthwise, tone-wise. It fitted into every possible format radio could want, but they just didn't touch it. But you look now... In, in a lot of advertising that's used in everything from Ampol ads to um, wind televisions, regional broadcasts, it's it's used a lot in advertising. So uh, hopefully better late than never are getting some royalties on that song. Ultimately, it's this gorgeous song with you know, a very dark outlook. And really, there's that line in the song, I still don't know what I'm here for. Is Grant singing that about Sydney or is he singing that about Brisbane? I mean, given that they recorded in Sydney, it could be about that. But there's arguments for either way. But he's not around to say, and I don't know whether he ever did say it at the time. It may be about neither. You know, sometimes writers don't write about what's around them and just sort of think, hey, I have a great idea for a lyric. This is my protagonist's perspective, not my perspective. But we tend to sort of think everything's autobiographical. Uh, you think about like the river flows under the bridge or is that the, is it the right... Um, the river under the bridge, yeah. That's Brisbane. Well, that's Brisbane. And ironically, they named a bridge uh, after the go-betweens in Brisbane. Yeah, didn't they? the Belfast Bridge, right? Yeah, yeah. And the ferry goes under it now on the, on its route up the up and down the rivers. And Sydney has that huge bridge too. I mean, right? There's that like walking bridge that the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yep. There's no description of how big the bridge is. There's no description of how big the river is. So it's it's your town. There's bridges and rivers everywhere. You know, it's like it's highly relatable, and it's also a, a sign of its time. The '80s. I mean, Thatcherism, uh, and then here Reaganism. And then you're talking about Petersonism. Although, mind you, the year that this album came out, I think was the year that J.B. Peterson was finally pushed out of office, not through necessarily through the voters, but because there were, what was it called, the Fitzgerald Inquiry that went and looked into the corruption in his government over however many years. He, I mean, he was in power for like about 17, 18 years. He kept getting voting in because he kept changing the ba- 
boundaries on which people could vote. We're still doing that here. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, I, I was reading, I was reading this Pig City book, and I thought this is Trumpism before Trump. Yeah, very, very scary. A lot of what happened was very scary. And I know that you've told me like a personal story, Doug, about troubles that you had during the times of the Floyd riots a couple of years ago, and a lot of this was just very common in uh, yeah. in Queensland and or in Brisbane, in, in more specifically. I wanted to sort of pair up streets of your town with love goes on as the other single that musically presents itself as a celebration of love but i think it's quite dark so another pretty sunlight melody but something that's very dark and actually there's two versions there was the 45 version where lindy's drumming is more typical of what we know her as and the album version which we're more familiar with it's more sounds like she's playing with brushes or maybe very quietly programmed drums but the single version probably they thought that maybe this is our better chance of getting a pop hit and it, it didn't but it's an interesting thing to listen to i want to get you guys perspective i had a thought listening over the last few weeks again in that musically it doesn't sound like this but i made a comparison between this album and loves forever changes because in both cases they're albums where they've gone very much acoustic having not done that before and I even sort of thought that Love Goes On sounds like a, a great acoustic opener that takes a listener, the long-time go-betweens fan, by surprise in the same way that Alone Again or would have taken Love Fans by surprise. Both albums, very different to what they put on before. Am I just imagining this, or do you sort of see that that is a good comparison? There's a cat in my alleyway Dreaming of birds that are blue Sometimes go when I'm lonely This is how I think about you no, I, I like that because there's in both there's tons of orchestration, there's tons of these beautiful arrangements and, and just melodies around every corner. But also, if they're the inside of it, when you actually look at it closer, it's dark and kind of about the ugliness of the world, um, presented in something that feels lush and beautiful and safe, cozy. That's one of my favorite records, Forever Changes. But it is dark and it's about mental illness and loneliness and you know just being completely uh sideswiped by the world and how that feels and i think that's a lot of what 16 lovers land feels like and like you're saying love goes on anyway which is almost it feels you know like i'm gonna lock you in a room (laughs) is you know part of it lovers want the moon and it's almost love goes on anyway 
uh, no matter how messy it is. It's a dark song because it's about a post-relationship breakup where the character has never quite gotten over it. And, you know, sort of thinking about reading from the book that Grant took years to get over Amanda. Maybe this is strangely prophetic, but that song is either the guy never got to be with the object of his dreams or he wants the good times to come back. He sings late at night when I want you, I lock you in my room, as you said, but you know, really I lock you in my head. I know a thing about darkness. I know a thing about lovers. Lovers want the moon. Once again, it's melodically sunshiny. And even just like in, just like in Streets of Your Town, where Amanda's doing a shine on. And in this song, we go da 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 da. It's this sunshiny thing that you, it's almost like a sing along. And you don't hear that in dark songs. But it seems like. You know, Grant is the master of saying, I'm giving you this. I'm going to fool you into thinking it's this type of song. But in fact, I'm going to present you something else. This is not a love song. Darkness ain't my friend. Love goes on anyway. It's almost like a, like a ballad to the concept of love. You know, that, that love goes on anyway. It's, it, it exists and we're powerless to it. And, you know, in saying darkness, I know a thing about darkness. Darkness ain't my friend. Like you said, it wants sunshine, but it knows sadness and darkness, <laughs> and it and it wants to, want it, it. Love goes on anyway. Darkness goes on anyway. These things are immutable. And it's kind of a powerful song about the the nature of love and the nature of pain. To me, it's like a the whole record is like an indie pop version of Vivaldi's Four Seasons, where you can hear the Four Seasons throughout the album. You can hear summer. You can hear winter. You can hear spring. You can hear autumn or fall, as the Americans call it. You can hear references to things about comfort and, you know, the heat is on, the windows are thin. You can hear the melody of uh, songs like Streets of Your Town, that it could be a summer song, it could be a spring song. To me, metaphorically, you can hear the four seasons in this record. I'm going to have to listen to it again in that frame of mind. I'd never thought, but that's brilliant. Yeah, I love it. And that's why it's such a complete record. It's a, it's got, it's got something on there for every mood that you could possibly go through. And I think it's written from that way of thinking as well. There's so many feelings and and mood changes on it. It's to me quite the perfect pop record. As we were discussing at the start of the show about where our favourite go-betweens moments are, you know, our favourite go-betweens record and songwriting progression, certainly not with these arrangements. These songs would have sounded a million times different if it had been with the before Hollywood only lineup, but they'd lived extra life, they'd lived life in London, they'd lived through relationships. This is two guys writing about their feelings on the world, their feelings on relationships, lightness and darkness, that's real life. Yeah, musically, so just coming back to this song, want to give props to John Willsteed. And, and really, the song is not the same without that sort of uh, arpeggiated, sort of flamenco-ish type guitar that he does in the middle. And you know, we're talking about, you know, go-betweens is not about guitar solos, but at least John Willsteed had the taste to say, right, I'll just do what suits the song. And he's a big song server on this album. It's, it's a very staccato, arpeggiated feel. My foot flat down on the I took it as far as I could I took it down there to Sheridan Street 
and I just really love what he does. And it's just these nice little touches. And that's what he and Amanda Brown really add to this album. They're trained musicians, I guess, but they know, right, we're not going to do anything over the top, over flesh. That's not what these two brilliant songwriters have given us. We need to do something to make this song absolutely work. Mark Wallace. I want to talk about Mark Wallace for a little bit. So what did he, I can't remember. He, had he gone and produced a U2 album or something like that before this? Did Joshua Trey, didn't he? Right, can I say something about that? Oh, sorry, yes, please, please. Have you ever noticed that Quiet Heart, the second song on the record, to me sounds, it starts out so much like With or Without You by U2. favorite song on the album too quiet heart if i was push comes to shove it's up for me and the beginning of it sounds to me so much like with or without you which was recorded they were recorded almost at the same time i believe that was released in like spring or summer of 87 and the, and this album was made through summer of 87 to early 88 or something like that because it, it, it feels very similar to start it doesn't it's it's not a ripoff or anything i never saw a musical connection between go betweens and u2 and, and just you know for the record i'm not a u2 fan but it seems like Mark Wallace had the taste, I guess, to make sure. I mean, there, there was something about his production that the go-between said, yeah, we want to bring you back because I think he'd already gone and recorded Tallulah with them. But this album sounds more like, I get because of the heavy reverb and the the ethereal nature, which is really what makes this album sound like no other go-betweens album. But the thing is, like, I'm listening to you 2 it always sounds to me like stadium rock, even when they're trying to be more sensitive and uh, quiet heart it doesn't sound like a stadium ballad it's not like a you know, big hair ballad sort of thing it is it is gentle it is sensitive it works with a limited palette like on the verses two chords up and down up and down um there is a d and a and it works to its advantage it's really enhancing the mood here and just you know some sensitive violin playing from amanda on this particular song but you know we we're talking before about the darkness on this album this is a song where i feel like grant as his, as his character singing this is somewhat of a narcissist uh, when he says i miss your quiet heart but he's always saying what did i do to make you cry i'm trying hard to keep the warmth in I turn to her and she's asleep. The storm's inside of me. I miss your quiet heart. He's never asking the love of his song, what's wrong? It's what did I do to make things wrong? So on the surface, once again, this sounds like it's a beautiful song of sensitivity, but there's something more going on here because Grant and Robert, I mean, this is a Grant song, but because of the two of them were literature students and they knew nuance, and they were able to introduce that into their lyricism. And it fools you into thinking one thing, but it really means another. And I just think that's part of their brilliance. Absolutely. And it connects to, like, was there anything I could do? Uh, which is another great song, which may, may be my favorite song on the record. She comes home and she's happy. She comes home and she's blue. 
I think that was a lot more obvious. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. But it's it's an extension, I think, of like like you said, like uh, calculated narcissism, yeah. right? It is. It's a character talking about themselves. How can I change this situation? Not what do you need. What am I going to do? I think that's maybe partially Grant, and maybe partially about that isolation of his childhood and like the ways we could relate it to. There's like a nostalgia of like, what could I have done? Where you replay something in your head, the mistrials of youth. And like you said, the literature background gives them this license, I think, um, for themselves, this permission from themselves to be characters and to create something that is close to who they are, but more universal or more accessible. I mean, maybe a lot of songs, maybe a lot of ballads of the 80s were inherently narcissistic in nature. It's, you know, what can I do for you? Babe, why are you hurting me? Um, of course, now that I'm talking about it, I can't think of a specific example, but I... Tempted by the fruit of another. A favourite squeeze song amongst me. She came down from the mountain Said goodbye to her guru Let's come back to Mark Wallace. I think it, he said in an interview that he'd spoken with Rob and Grant, uh, like when they originally approached him and said, hey, we'd like you to do this next album with us as well. We like the production that you've been doing for other people. And uh, he said, all right, well, show me what you got. And so they had Grant and Robert playing opposite each other, just two guitars sitting in a room facing each other off. And he said, I like what you're doing there. That's how we're going to record you. We're going to record these songs with you facing off against each other and we'll build the rhythm section around you, which is not you know, modern recording technique. That was his thinking. And I'm thinking of a couple of songs on the album in particular where it sounds to me, I mean, it's obvious in hindsight, but it sounds to me like that sonically that's what they're doing. So love is a sign. Uh, yep. Seems to be the beneficiary of that approach. I'm 10 feet underwater Standing in a sunken canoe Looking up at the water lilies Their green and violet blue And still the sun it finds A place to lie uh, It really seems to have sonically captured uh, McLennan and Forster's guitars just absolutely beautifully I'm sure they could have recorded it just fine with one playing the guitar and the other one playing the guitar in a booth or something like that. But there's such a richness in sound to me that I imagine the two of them were facing and working off each other on that recording. And unlike the singles that came off the album, this is a forced decomposition. And it just, to me, it has... I, I can't remember one of you mentioned something about a summer sound. So it would have been you, Darren, because you were talking about the four seasons... And there's the summer sound. And this song, to me, it has that shimmering summer sound. I don't know. I can't define it. But do you get that? Do you feel that? Yeah, very much so. There's so many references in the lyrics there where you could just you could almost picture them writing and performing the, and recording the album, you know, with the sun coming through the one of the windows. So in, um, in a later interview, a friend of mine, Noel Mengel, who's a journalist, he um, did interview with Robert and Grant for Oceans Apart and the DVD that came out 
where they were sitting on the patio playing together. And he often talked about how when they recorded, they'd just sit in their favourite comfy chairs in their favourite room and just let it come out. And they'd sit, like you mentioned, opposite each other and just follow each other's fingers on the guitars. It's beautiful. And that's the sort of thing that two friends did. That's, to me, how that works. I mean, look, once again, this is purely subjective, but I listened to Love is a Sign. I mean, this could be really for any go-betweens album, but, Darren, you'd be aware that you know, Paul Kelly was a huge fan of uh, the go-betweens, and it makes so much sense. But this song sounds to me like the sort of thing that Paul Kelly listened to and thought, huh... I'd better write a couple of notes here. I think I'm going to approach a song. I want to write a song like this. And certainly, the, you know, a couple of songs off comedy, which would have been out the same year, I think. Yeah, Grant actually did backing vocals on Gossip. There's a couple of tracks. I think it was Don't Harm the Messenger was one of the tracks where he's, uh, I think it was Don't Harm the Messenger. One of the tracks, one or two of the tracks on Gossip, Grant was actually doing backing vocals on that Paul Kelly record. Yeah, he would have been in good company because I know that Michael Barclay, his drummer was like the supreme harmony singer uh, yep. on those early Paul Kelly records. So, But yeah, this song could have fit in on comedy or So Much Water, So Close to Home. So I definitely think that uh, PK was uh, paying attention to him as a songwriter and thinking, I'm going to try to adapt. I mean, once again, that's subjective. Paul, if you're listening to the podcast, feel free to write in to me and say, no, you're full of shit or um, you're onto something there. I remember reading something about, I think it was Catalan Kane, where Paul Kelly heard it and had to pull his car over. Yes, yes, he, he did say that. I think it's in the documentary that Creve Stenders made that we've spoken about before. He actually says that in the film. I love hearing stories like that where a songwriter says, I had to pull the car over. Uh, and I've heard yeah. a few people say that. Yeah, it's great because it's, it's your craft, like seeing a beautiful work of art, you know, that, and you're like, how did someone do this? And I think the go-betweens specifically inspire that because they're such great great songwriters the songs are always there even those early songs i think the like we were talking about your turn my turn or um this girl black girl or uh kind of Kane, where it's just the songs are there that the style is not the same it's not the lush production of this record but the songwriting is in place i feel like they're ready to go into this space that 16 lovers lane is where it is so much more ornate than they had done before. It's the logical conclusion, in a lot of ways, of, of their abilities and their uh, songwriting craft. I think at this period, Australia wasn't short of great songwriters. It sounds bizarre in some ways, but yet it certainly makes completely perfect sense. You know, when you've got people like Grant McLennan and Robert Forster with Paul Kelly, with Richard Clapton, but this song, uh, Love is a Sign, just shows just how eloquent that Forster is as a lyricist. I'm 10 feet under, standing in a sunken canoe, looking up at the water lilies, um, which seems to me like it's a variation on Oscar Wilde's famous, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. We are sort of talking a bit before about the songs that Grant wrote seems so unusual in terms of being in a relationship where he's madly in love with the violinist in his band, but Lindy and Robert had already broken up and his songs don't say they're not nasty i mean he wouldn't dare i guess with her probably capable of throwing a drumstick at the back of his head but he says i know i'll see you again the world's too big or small i won't be the madman then it will be me that comes to call so i think he always says i think we had too much in our past to completely give it up don't think of me badly i've 
still think we can be good friends. And, and there's that nice line about London no longer exists. You know, we'll always have Paris. It refers to their time, uh, hand-to-mouth conditions, you know, with you know, the band living under really dire conditions in London. No matter what you say, I want to be the one and love is a sign. We'll still have love between the two of us. And that sort of also holds true for the final song on the album, Dive for Your Memory. If the cliffs were any closer The water wasn't so bad I'd dive for your memory On the rocks and the sand I'd dive for you The theme of that song is, you you say things are shit, I say things were good. Now I dive black waters, the waters of her dream, as black and forgetful, I'd like to make them clear. I mean, I'd like to get Lindy's perspective, whether she says, you know, no, Robert, you're full of shit. But at least song-wise, unlike Grant, who's really writing dark stuff, which you almost say is, that's a little bit creepy. But Robert's perspective is, look, I know we're not together, but I prefer to think about the good times that we had. But of course, he's very poetic about it. It's not Moon June type of songwriting. Just yeah, in, in that Die Fear memory as well, you know, there's beautiful combination of John Wilstey's lead guitar and Amanda's oboe motif between the chorus and verse that just really adds to the wistfulness of this song it's a beautiful song be up there for funeral funeral choice for me i think (laughs) one of the things i think that's undersold maybe about amanda where we sort of know her voice and we know that she's a violinist but she's also a beautiful oboe player and oboe not necessarily the most rock instrument but i think it's a tribute to how these songs are arranged and maybe mark wallace as a producer where he puts the oboe in so in the song cloud the clouds are here in the sky don't know if this is by Robert Force's initiation or what Mark Wallace saw as appropriate, but the oboe is a sort of instrument because it's not a chordal instrument. You sort of think, right, you put that in the front of the mix, but it sort of plays behind it, and yet it still sort of works very well. For me, it's just a little bit of flavour. It's a little bit of sugar on the French toast. I don't know if you'd want to call it, but I just like that it's utilised more as it's a background thing, which is not usually what you do for a, a note instrument, right? Rather than a chordal instrument. Morris, I think she's just a stunning um, musician and she just provided that beautiful subtleness to the bongs. And I've said it before, without Amanda and John on that album, I don't think it was going to have the impact on me that it did. I think she's a very gifted human being and, and even her new new album that's out at the moment, she just released her, her first solo album after all these years and it's a stunning piece of work. Lying on the cool grass Looking at the sky The moon illuminates the trees Above us in the night More people around the world Bathed in beaming cathode rays Watched Elvis in her 
You know, you mentioned before the themes to movies that she's done over the journey, instrumental-wise. It, vocally, I think she undersells herself as well. Yeah, Clouds is, is such a beautiful song, and it is one of those, maybe it's a little hacky to say, but it does float along like a cloud. Like, it feels very light. It's a beautiful song, and I do love that they push the, like you said, they, they don't, or they don't push the oboe. I don't know, it's like, it's like songs where there's guitar solos throughout the entire song, where you just feel like, kind of like you're unsure, you're on unstable ground. And I really like the, the feel of it. With a name like that, it's going to be something that's romantic and ethereal, and certainly musically it is, and it does feel like you're floating along the clouds. It's possibly because of the uh, guitar being played. It sounds like it's played higher up the fretboard, and as well as Mark Wallace's production. But the interesting thing, it wouldn't be appropriate for this album if it wasn't a dark song. And clouds, I sort of see in this song as like a, a metaphor. He says, I'm angry, I'm wise, you're under cloudy skies. It's not for Robert Forster to say, I'm hurt. It's always poetic. But this isn't a relationship song about how wonderful things are. And I'm, I'm floating above the clouds. The clouds are an abstraction. It's a metaphor for pain. I'm here and you're underneath them it's a gap between me and the truth yeah i mean he says you know told to equate achievement with pain you're in a situation that's bad there's this um idea that through pain we find something important to ourselves but he's you know saying you're under cloudy skies you're, you're in a bad situation or he said what i did once i now do every day what do you think that means in context of the song i'm not sure i mean i know that what i did once i now do every day is something about you know life never changing um yeah we become stagnant we're not looking for anything new yeah you're under cloudy space you know like and visions of blue which he repeats over and over again blue air there's all these there's all these this talk of like something that feels hopeful or beautiful but someone can't see it because they're under cloudy skies they can't see beyond the pain maybe these are the cloudy skies over the streets of your town (laughs) (laughs) we've talked quite a fair bit about their history and about this album and its themes and queensland so maybe it's probably as good a time as any to wrap it up do you have any final thoughts about you know just your overall love of the album well you know doug we'll start with you your final thoughts yeah it's one it's one of those albums that feels like the natural progression of some fantastic songwriters it feels like the rubber has met the road and they've finally hit their stride and it's wild the end of the band and the original the original end of the band right they've gone out on this note that feels like someone who understands their sound is the ultimate you know sort of like lush production that their songs call for and they still couldn't get over you know it's it's they still couldn't get quite through that they couldn't break through and so there's something bittersweet about this record and there's something bittersweet about it inherently because of the way you know the darkness uh, within the lyrics and, and the lightness of so much of the music and how I mean I put this record on all the time when we're having supper with as a family it's a it's nice music but when you get into it 
and actually sit down with it for a long time, you know, reveals itself to be something so much more than nice, pleasant music. And I think the go-betweens do that over and over again, where you can put any record on and people are going to, nobody's going to have a problem with it. When you sit down and you, you pour over it, you find that it's just, it's genius. And it's genius done over and over again. Uh, in so many ways, and this is sort of the culmination of just two brilliant songwriters who were able to catch lightning in a bottle and do that repeatedly. <laughs> so now it's it's one of those albums that has so many layers of beauty. Every listen, you you just pick up something new, and you know, well over thirty years since it's come out now, and I it still sends a shiver up my spine. And you think about how lucky we were in Australia at that in that period with some of the albums that, that were released, you know, either side of, of 16 Lovers Lane, you know, albums like Born uh, Sandy Devotional by the Triffids or uh, The Stems at First Sight, Violets of Blue, Died Pretties, Doughboy Hollow, The Church, Starfish, just, you know, just to think of some of my favourite albums that came out at that period. And you still listen to 16 Lovers Lane today and it sounds as fresh as it did that first listen. And it was interesting to see when they eventually did get back and do the next album, the change of direction. You know, they produced it themselves. They brought in uh, Sleater Kinney percussion members and it was a totally different feel songwriting-wise. Time knocks you down like a rolling ball memory home Love leaves you clean like a waterfall Then you hit a wall Hit a wall I've only heard the Friends of Rachel Worth of the three Reformation albums and that sort of seemed to me like they were going back to um, how they started rather than uh, continuing that yeah, it had a it had a much more raw feel to it, and so did um, bright yellow, bright orange. By Oceans Apart, with bringing in uh, you know some talented musicians, Glenn from the band Custard and Adele Pickfence, who had toured previously um, with both Robert and Grant, bringing those in and as a collective. And Oceans Apart was getting back to some fine quality Foster McLennan songwriting, I thought, and it was a shame that it, the story ended there. We still have the records that we do, and if, if you were lucky enough or had enough money to be able to afford those box sets from the early days, there's riches there. I'd, I'd like to see, I mean, it probably won't happen, but it'd be nice to see if they released the CDs that they put with the, with the records in those box sets as individual things just for people who didn't necessarily want to get the records all over again. But um, there's so much stuff that's just... Part three is coming, the box set, apparently. It's to cover the, the Reformation stuff. Yeah, and also um, hopefully some of Grant's solo reissues. I think Domino in Germany are behind it at the moment. When we last asked Robert about it, he was hoping that it'd be um, December last year that they were going to see the light of day. But um, I think he's working on it behind the scenes. That'll bring up Friends of Rachel Worth, Bright Yellow, Bright Orange, Oceans Apart, and then obviously the... 
all the extras that you mentioned that go along with those three albums. So it'll be interesting to see what's included in that third part of the trilogy to wrap it all up and bookend it. Fantastic. In this day and age where uh, a lot of stuff may be forgotten about or just ends up on a streaming site, it's nice to know that this is being archived with such care and love. I mean, there's a great book in that uh, second box set, which Pat loaned me. It, it looks like just so much care has gone into the mastering, uh, so much care in the presentation. That's his legacy. That's the band's legacy. So yeah, wonderful, to, wonderful to know that there's still more to come. She knows that I'm not ready When my nerves are steady When my eyes are free of tears Someday she doesn't want to hurt me It's okay Huge thanks to you both. I've really, really loved this discussion. For the listeners out there, we actually spoke for about an hour before we even started recording. This is why I do this podcast, to meet up with, with fellow music lovers and we shoot the shit about all sorts of things. So um, my huge thanks to you both and thanks for being patient because this was supposed to be recorded late last year, but here we finally did it. Any creative endeavours, anything you want to mention to the listeners out there anything that people should know if they want to find you or that you want to promote uh not so much for me but there's you know plenty of go-betweens influences in uh a lot of things that we're listening to at the at the moment with bands like rvg um a few years ago dick diver you could have closed your eyes and thought it was robert and grant that album's fantastic plenty of go-betweens influences in a lot of the new young bands that are happening today and that pleases me greatly. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really speak about that so much, but it does seem to me like there's a lot of stuff that sounds like they have uh, uh, Robert and Grant just hovering over their shoulder and saying, yeah, do it like this. So um, there might not have been a, like a big top 40 bands, but like Velvet Underground, they were the bands that, uh, that kids heard and said, right, I'm going to form a band. Well, that's, you know, Robert's love of New York bands is, you know, pretty evident, you know, there with... You know, modern lovers and um, right. and talking heads that influence on him. That uh, he was a big fan of that whole New York scene. Anything from you, Doug? Anything that you're doing? I do a small like record label called Ape Sanctuary. I've been doing this project where I record an album every month. That's pretty much all I've been doing as far as creatively. A lot of four track music. Um, is there a link online if people want to hear some of that music? Sure. You know, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but if you go to Bandcamp and you type in uh, Apes Sanctuary. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. This is a small aside before we go, but I was driving one day and I saw this uh, thing posted on a telephone pole that had been printed out and it just said Ape Sanctuary and there's a phone number for it. And I called it and the person answered Ape Sanctuary and I said, what are you? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I found this on a telephone pole and they hung up on me. And when I tried to call back, it kept going to a voicemail. And so I have no idea what that is, but I named the record label after it because it was, uh, it was a very strange experience. You gave the wrong password, Doug. I know. <laughs> password is uh, hydroponic. <laughs> Stumm, stumm. 
So next month uh, is going to be very special because we're going to be having on a fellow called Nate Wilcox. He hosts an excellent podcast in the Pantheon Network called Let It Roll, which focuses on interviews with authors of music-related books. And I think he wants to discuss every music-related book that's ever been written. He's not limited to anyone's style. Uh, a few months ago, we had Steve Jurgensmeyer, who has an excellent podcast called Deep Dive All Music Books. So to have access to two great readers of uh, music-related books is very exciting for me. But Nate Wilcox, I knew I wanted him on the show. And I asked him, I said, well, I'd love to have you on the program. What can we do? And I said, is there an Australian band that you really love? He said, you know what? I really, really, really love the Easy Beats. I'd like to talk about the Easy Beats. We're not going to talk about a specific album from their recording career, but he's a big fan of the anthology that Glenn A. Baker put together in the 80s. What was it called? The Absolute Anthology. So we'll talk about that and about the Easy Beats career in general. But I thought I had to get in contact with another previous guest, Jeff Apter, who I'd previously had on the show talking about his biography on John English. He put out a biography on George Young, not only one of the creative geniuses behind the Easy Beats, but also the man behind Albert Production and ACDC and John Paul Young. How do you get those two names in the same sentence? I don't know. So Jeff Apter is going to have a separate discussion with me about his biography on George Young. I don't know whether I'll put that out as a bonus episode or whether I'll include that in the main show with Nate Wilcox. But either way, there's going to be a lot of Easy Beats talk, a lot of flash in the pan, Stevie Wright talk next month. Australian music history. I'm so excited. And we have, I've lined up another Australian musician for May. I'm I'm not going to announce that yet, but hugely excited. All I'll say is one of Australia's greatest songwriters ever. Knowing my tastes, you can work it out. Maybe or maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, so next month for episode 164, Easy Beats Talk, George Young and Harry Vander Talk. Looking forward to that immensely. So uh, please spread the word that the show exists. And once again, my huge thanks to... Uh, Darren and Doug for uh, joining me this month to talk about the go-between. So look after yourselves, be nice to each other, and we'll speak to you again next month. All the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.